0: Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program. We are teaching on the final redemption of Israel, which includes a whole series of things. I'm going to review some of that with you in this program to give you more definition. This is our third program in that series, and I just want to briefly remind you, in the first one, we talked about Romans chapter 11 about how emphatic Paul was to the effect that God has not rejected Israel and that there has remained a remnant. And then in the second program, we covered about how Moses had prophesied that Israel would be ultimately scattered into all the nations. As you know, the history of Israel, is they were divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was assimilated by the Gentiles and the Assyrian effort and then judah went into the nations through the romans and about how that judah has now returned to the land of israel which is according to the prophecy what's to take place But we're looking forward when the house of Israel will also join with the house of Judah and come back as well. These are all major prophecies throughout all the Bible, bringing us to the end of the ages under a banner we call the final redemption of Israel. Now, in the last program in particular, I walked you through a number of key prophecies from Moses all the way through Isaiah and Jeremiah and even to the words of the Messiah himself talking about how that israel is scattered in all these remote parts the different parts of israel scattered how they would be brought back by the messiah that would be brought back at the end of the ages now one of the things that i have not emphasized is so much about the when this happens other than just to say to you it happens at the end of the ages we'll get more into that in future programs I want to take you back again to what Paul had to say about the subject, about this whole dynamic of Israel being scattered and being regathered. So if you would join with me now in Romans chapter 11, again, beginning at verse 25, Paul makes this very, very specific statement that I want you to see. Verse 25, "'For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery.'" I want to stop right there just for a moment. Anytime Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand this mystery, those are the things that are like a huge mystery to Christians. Christians don't seem to understand that when Paul's saying this, this is a profound thing that's getting ready to be said. Instead of teaching this profound mystery, it is completely ignored. By the church and by the church fathers, and by pastors and churches today. Only in the Messianic movement are you hearing any elements of this. There is a great mystery about God's dealing with Israel throughout all of these many, many generations. So it continues and says, So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That right there is a clear indication that they don't understand the mystery because the church has become wise in their own estimation and is failing to understand this teaching. It's both Old Testament, New Testament, it's both Moses, it's all the prophets, it's the Messiah, and it's even the apostles. Let me go ahead and continue on. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. I remember when I was a good Baptist, and I was a Baptist teacher, And it was in the ministry with the Baptists. I remember reading those words, thus all Israel will be saved. And, of course, we good Baptists, I can tell you how to be a good Baptist minister for four Sundays in the month. Three Sundays are on salvation, one Sunday on stewardship about giving. That's your basic Baptist preaching. So we thought we were experts in what was God's salvation. But this verse, thus all Israel will be saved, just really hit us up broadside because there was no way the salvation teaching that was in the evangelical church and especially in the baptist where i was at would ever permit this that israel sinned israel was rejected as the covenant with israel was broken and i was told the covenants are conditional and that they broke the covenant so it's done and so that's the reason why God established the new covenant with the Messiah and that's the the covenant we have that's the agreement and how is Israel supposed to get saved at the end if they don't qualify under the new covenant thus they would have to become Christians and stop being Israel at least that's according to the church and that's just not correct brethren it is not correct. And by the way, it's not that the word of God is incorrect. It's that the Baptists and the Evangelicals and those that are coming out of the Christian church don't get it. It's a mystery to them. They've become wise beyond their own estimation, and they're making a huge mistake. Now, it clearly says in this scripture that Israel is going to get saved at a certain time until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, what in the world is the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, let me give you the short definition, which I think is, I'm backed up on in Scripture, and that is that the time that Israel is cast into the nations, it's the fullness of the Gentiles. It is the when the Gentiles are the predominant thing as opposed to Israel spiritually. We have many Gentile believers in the faith and it's the fullness of the gentiles coming for as you know in this generation we've seen the history of mankind the fullness of the gentiles is now coming into full glory i was just commenting the other day with a friend of mine that i was born in 1949 and in the 1950s is when all the american automobiles took off and they became a very popular thing for the average american to have and they want to start going on vacations and the little trailer behind the car and, and uh, that's when things took off. And with the automobile industry, the aircraft industry took off and to the extent that in my lifetime, the space program came along, NASA going to the moon. And now today you see incredible uh, automobiles driving around on the road, trucks and so forth that everybody can afford. Now That's actually wrong. They can't afford them, but they drive them anyways. But in any case, you see the technology in this last generation has come into fullness. And it's like the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the world has come. And that lines up with the prophet Daniel who said there were three things that would be at the end. There would be many people, and by the way, the population of the world now far exceeds all of the previous generations all put together. In other words, there's more than 50% of the people who have ever lived on the earth are alive today on the earth in this generation. That knowledge would increase. Nobody's going to dispute me on that one. Knowledge has definitely increased within this generation. And that we'd travel to and fro, both by automobile. Today, we run around in an automobile and cover more ground. People used to, the generation before, they walked. You wanted to live in town where it was walking distance to the market or to your work. Now you drive and our transportation is. And now today we travel across the country, which used to be a once-of-a-lifetime trip in previous generations. So the world that we live in has come to fullness. The fullness of the Gentiles is all about that. It's all about the world filling up into its fullest glory that it's ever been this is part of the timing that comes with the final redemption when all of this is going to come to a conclusion here at the end of the ages he goes on to say that what has happened with Israel he calls it a partial hardening not a full hardening not rejection it's just that a lot of Israel that visible appears to be at odds with the Messiah appears to be at odds with what God has said But there is a remnant, there has always been a remnant, who does believe in the God of Israel, does believe in the Messiah. The modern messianic movement today is clearly evidence and proof that that hardening of the heart is only partial. There are many who are trusting the Lord and following the Lord even to this day in the midst of this generation. Let me also take you further into what he says there. He quotes a verse from Isaiah, And he says, just as as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We are still talking about Messiah Yeshua paying for sins and the redemption that the Messiah gives to us. It says that redemption that was brought by the Messiah is going to be made available to them and to those of the house of Jacob. Now, I'm going to, in a little bit, in one of the future programs, I'm going to take you and show you specifically the moment when God stands up and declares the end of the exile of the nations. There is a very specific moment that is prophesied to take place. I'll take you to that prophecy, but that we're going to save that for a little bit later when we cover that what i'd like to do before we get there is i need to go back and give some foundational material again when we're talking about the final redemption let me just give you a now a new expanded definition from what we've already learned that final redemption includes the following things the messiah gathering the scattered sheep of israel like a shepherd that he will become the great shepherd who brings the scattered of Israel and the sheep back. Let me just share along that word picture with it is, if you've been around shepherds or you've been around flocks and you learn anything about this subject, the, I think the reason why the Lord uses that particular word picture is because of the following things. Sheep are dumb. Let me, let me just say that straight out to you. If you get around a flock of sheep, you're going to find out they're really dumb. And they need a shepherd to be able to keep them safe, to gather them so that they get fed properly, they get watered properly, and they are protected properly. Sheep have a tendency to wander off from the flock. They'll see something and go pursue it and walk away from all the other sheep. Sheep also have this nature about them that they feel safe and secure if they get shoulder to shoulder with other sheep. And if you can get a bunch of sheep to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other in a nice little tight flock, and if you see pictures of flocks or see how they travel, that's the way they like to travel. They like to be very close to each other. They feel secure when they're in that position. And we have a lot of Christians today that are in their churches, in their little flocks, and they're all together in the same, you know, same pew, same area, same pastor, same kind of thing, and they all feel secure there. But the problem is this with sheep. If you get a wolf to come in in the midst of those sheep, that wolf can go from sheep to sheep and rip the throat out of every one of those sheep because they won't run away. Because for some reason, they say, even though I see the wolf and I see what the wolf is doing, I still feel safe and secure if I'm standing beside another sheep. And we have a lot of people who resist coming into the Messianic movement, resist this teaching, resist changing from what they're accustomed to in the church is because they they have the behavior of sheep. They are standing beside their brethren they've always gone to church with, and they can't possibly imagine doing anything different from that, even if someone says, hey, it's not safe for you here, that there's another program that you're supposed to be a part of, They're stuck in that flock. They're stuck in that thinking. As a result, there are many false prophets come into the midst of it. False teaching comes in the midst of it, and they can't separate and distinguish out. Only the sheep that are willing to get your nose in the book and learn what Lord has really said and are willing to pursue what the shepherd is saying instead of what all the other sheep are doing is the one who's going to be able to be a part of this final redemption. The final redemption also includes the resurrection of the saints. Now we're all looking forward to that, uh, the blessed hope. By the way, the resurrection of the saints is the same time that the rapture that people are looking for takes place. In fact, the rapture is clearly defined for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15 as reminding you that those that are asleep in the Lord will be raised first And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them. But the way the rapture is taught to a lot of people today, they just see themselves being raised up and they forget the whole resurrection thing. And the scripture is very emphatic about there's a first resurrection uh, of the just, and that's when the rapture takes place. The problem is that the scripture says that involves the tribulation saints and comes after the tribulation. Thus those that teach in the pre-tribulation rapture that there's a rapture of the church and the saints before the tribulation, it is false teaching. It is false hope. And like sheep, they tend to follow that which is consistent to which they want to do, taking teachers that are tickling their ears instead of listening to what the Lord says. It's in fact, if you're going to learn the final redemption, You have to set aside all those other previous teachings. You have to listen to what has the scripture said, what has the shepherd said. The final redemption also includes the reunification of the two houses of Israel. Some people think that's a separate, distinct topic, and to a certain extent, certain prophecies do address it that way. However, the restoring of the two houses of Israel is also part of the final redemption. It's part of bringing back the scattered exiles together to be in the land. And finally, it it includes the return to the land, the messianic kingdom. Again, when the Messiah returns, he owns the whole earth. It's Israel. He's going to live in Jerusalem. We're all going to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. There will be no other nations at that time. They're gone. It's just Israel and the earth, and we're going to be part of Israel, the kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, dwelling on the earth. And as I've shared with you before, the earth is going to be severely restructured in a cataclysmic uphill associated with the day of the Lord. But this is the world that we will live in. We will live in the Messianic kingdom at that time. Now, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, where Daniel, who had been praying for the return of the remnant from Babylon, that the angel Gabriel had come to him and had given him some information that had to do with the end and had to do with how the Messiah was going to pull all this off. These are the passages of Scriptures that all in time prophecy teachers make reference to in Daniel chapter 9, but I want you to look at verse 24 because it gives a beautiful description of the messianic kingdom. This is the ultimate goal. This is what the final redemption of Israel leads to. He says there, the verse says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So we're talking about the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem where the Messiah is going to rule from. And then he lists seven things that are going to be accomplished to finish the transgression. Transgression is sin that is caused because you disobey the law of God. So we're going to end anybody transgressing the law. That doesn't mean the law goes away. That means that we're all going to obey the law. We will finish the transgression of the law. We will make an end of sin. Sin is very specifically in the Bible referred to as missing the mark. In other words, we failed to do that which was right. We didn't do that which is right. Therefore, it is sin. And we will now do things correctly. We will not miss the mark anymore. And then finally, he says, to make atonement for iniquity. Iniquity is considered to be very gross sin, sometimes violent Sin. It is willful and intentional, disgusting sin. And he says that he's going to make atonement for it. Well, there's one of those big biblical words that has great theological meaning. What does atonement have to do with redemption? Let me give you a shortened definition for that. Atonement has to do with reconciliation, redemption has to do with the payment and propitiation for sin. But atonement is reconciliation. So there's going to be reconciliation with regard to iniquity. In other words, if a person went and was full of iniquity and did murder and all kinds of grievous things, then there's going to be a day of reconciliation for that. And it will all be completed. The Bible in Revelation is very clear about a whole class of people there at the end that are not going to be going into the kingdom. God is going to be reconciled to man. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. The day of reconciliation. He brings an end to all of that kind of behavior. So three things, finish transgression, end of sin, make atonement for iniquity. And then he says to bring in everlasting righteousness. The only way that can be done is God has to dwell with us. He's the righteous one. We will be referring to him as the Lord, our righteousness. We will determine what is the right thing to do based on what the Lord says, not on what we individually think or say of ourselves. To seal up vision. We have a lot of prophecies here at the end that has to do with all these things are supposed to be happening. He says all of those will be sealed up. They'll be completed. To seal up prophecy also all that has been prophesied to be will be completed i don't know if you have ever picked up on this before but prophecy is simply history that hasn't happened yet and oh by the way history is prophecy that hasn't happened yet and he's going to seal that up everything that has historically been taking place that had a prophetic message it's going to be fulfilled it's going to be completed And there would be no no more need to prophesy further because all matters have been brought to a conclusion. And this is called the final redemption of Israel. And finally, the last phrase, and to anoint the most holy place. This is the place where Yeshua will now live with us and dwell with us. And the holy place, a reference to the temple and to the temple in Jerusalem. And that's his dwelling place with us on the earth. These seven things are a beautiful definition for us as to what the the final redemption of Israel really is. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and to seal up prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Now, one of the other things that comes with that verse that I think that you should also take into account And it goes back to something I've been trying to share with you much earlier. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That scripture, that phrase says simply this. What God has called and what God has purposed and intended is what is going to happen. There's not going to be a set of other circumstances that's going to change this. For those who would contend, well, when the Messiah came, he changed everything. No, he didn't. He came to fulfill exactly what God has purposed to do. Part of our problem with that is we fail to understand truly what God has said the plan was going to be. Therefore, when he did things that didn't seem to line up with what we thought should happen, we think somehow we've got to conform or change our theology so it makes sense to us. There's going to be a lot of things that God does that doesn't make sense to us, but it's right, and it's what God said, and it's what God going to do. Now, I go back to the central point I've been trying to share with you. God did not reject Israel. He called Israel. The call on Israel is irrevocable. Not Israel can change it. God's not going to change it. And the church coming along and claiming that they are now God's economy or whatever in the program is not going to change it. The church was not established by the Messiah. The Messiah came and established redemption for all of Israel. And it's what has been happened is it's been hijacked and misappropriated for the institution of what is called the church. Now, I, you're probably thinking, well, Monty, you've gone crazy. You know, you're, here you are speaking against the church. You can't believe you're speaking against the church. You know what? I've been studying the Torah for a lot of years. I've been studying the scripture for a lot of years. I've been trying to understand what as the Lord said versus what do men say. And I've finally gotten to that station of life where I'm older, and I don't care what other men think. I only care about what God says, and this is what God says. Now, if you don't like what God has to say, well, you can take it up with him later on. I'm just the messenger here to repeat to you what the Lord has said, and in the meantime, I'm not going to sit here and try to justify what the Lord has said. I'm just going to tell you what he has said, and it is up to you, and it is upon you to be reconciled to what God has said, not necessarily to be reconciled to what the church said or huddle up with your fellow sheep shoulder to shoulder and say, hey, we feel safe and secure. We're all huddled together. And by the majority of us being in the church, we disagree with you, Monty. I don't care if you are the majority. You know, God plus one is a majority. You don't owe that, don't you? God plus one is the real majority. And if God is with you, great. If God is not with you, you've got a problem, especially when it comes to theology. God's covenants that he's established have never gone away. Every covenant that God has ever established continues and remains with us today. Now, I know that I use the phrase Old Covenant, and it, it's the common vernacular that we use in the faith when we talk about the previous covenants to the New Covenant. The book of Hebrews coined that phrase it's very common In our language for it but the reality is that god's really established six covenants already and there is a seventh one prophesied to be quickly the covenants that god made with mankind are with adam with noah with abraham with moses and the children of israel with king david and then also with the messiah i want to Because this point is absolutely crucial for us to be able to go forward and to truly believe in these promises that God has given to us, one of the things I'm going to do with you next, and in this episode I want to cover some of this, is I want to take you back to each one of these covenants. I need to take you back to each covenant and show you exactly what did God agree to. I need to show you there's none of these are conditional Every one of these are made forever. In fact, the phrase that is used and expressed over them, they're called the salt covenant. Now, salt, that little substance that we have on the supper table and we sprinkle on our food, those grains of salt, that salt material there, sodium chloride, how long has that been around? That stuff has been around since the creation. It's never going to go away. If you put salt in water and dissolve it and so forth, as soon as the water evaporates, you got salt again. Salt is like a reference to something that is permanent amongst us. And he calls these covenants the salt covenant. These are eternal covenants, they do not go away. Let me take you, and let's do a quick review of them because I want you to see what the Lord said in each of these cases. And I want you to draw a very simple conclusion. I'm going to show you each covenant and tell you what God agreed to with man or mankind. And then we're going to ask the question, has that gone away? Or are the provisions of that covenant still remaining in force today with us? So let's go first to the covenant they made with man. Adam was the very first one. And in Genesis 3, verses 16 and 17, he said the following. To the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you will eat it all the days of your life." All right, let's make sure that we understand something. Is that still in effect even today, even with the Messiah coming and so forth? Do do women, wives, mothers, do they still bear children in travail and childbirth? The answer is yes, they always have, and they will, and even in the new covenant. The new covenant didn't change that. And in fact, the covenant that God made with Noah didn't change it, and the one he made with Abraham didn't change it. This has remained true for all of mankind. Men have to labor and toil with the earth. We're made out of the earth. We have to use and work with the earth for us to produce so we can live, and we make our homes from it, we make our clothes from it, we eat food from it, we toil, labor and toil associated with the earth. And in fact, in verse 19, he goes and he says this, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return. Every one of us that are in the mortal frame that we are today, if we pass before the Lord has made it back, guess where your body is going? It's going back to the earth. And that is the provision of the covenant that God made with Adam. You are part of the earth. You came out of the earth. You're going to go back to the earth. Your life is going to be contingent upon you laboring and toiling with the things of the earth. We don't get to live in a different dimension. We don't get to live like the angels live. We don't transport back and forth heaven to earth. We're here on the earth. And he further went on to say this in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We used to be, when we were first made, we used to be naked, but we didn't know it. And we didn't have any need for clothes. Well, honestly, we didn't. We, you know, It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too hot. We didn't need clothes. We were just walking around. We were just like any other natural creature God had made. But because of sin and because of the covenant was made, God made the first set of clothes for us. And it was the slaying of an animal to take the skin from the animal. So something had to die for us to have the provisions that we need now. Well, this is the first lesson of propitiation and substitution. The the gospel is based on the premise that God has to come, pay a price has to die so that we can put on redemption, so we can put on the covering of righteousness, the righteousness of God, not our own. We don't have our own. We are naked before God. And so the very first evidence with Adam set the precedent for us. And by the way, that's true in all generations ever since. That has never been changed whatsoever by any of the other covenants. And then he went on to say that the sign of the covenant is that we're made out of the earth and we return to the earth and the wearing of clothes. The fact that we walk around and we wear clothes today is evidence of the Adamic covenant is still in full effect. It has not gone away. So right off the bat, let's just go ahead and say this. Do we call that part of the old covenant? Well, in our common language today, we refer to things that happened before the Messiah. It's all the old covenant. And I've heard a bunch of preachers go around saying, for example, well, the only thing that comes out of the old covenant is the moral law. Do's and don'ts with regard to murder, stealing, theft, the the moral law. They say, hey, I got news for you. There's stuff in this Adamic covenant. It comes forward, too. We wear clothes. We live and die based on the things of the earth, and we return to the earth when we die. That's part of the Adamic covenant. So let's move to the next covenant that God made. How about the Noahic covenant? Let me read to you from Genesis 9, beginning at verse 1. This is what God then did with mankind, specifically with Noah and his descendants. This is what he said. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same thing that he said with Adam. And so the same things are carried over into Noah's day. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. So first of all, let me just say right off the bat, when you go out in the woods, you will probably frighten a lot of animals. Why? Because that was the agreement that God made with Noah. From here on out, mankind, you will be a fear to the animal kingdom. If you go out and go fishing, the fish don't just jump at the boat because you decide to go fishing. You have to lure them and trap them, catch them, and bring them in because they're afraid of you. And even animals of prey are afraid of man. It's only when they get cornered that it can be bad for us. When they are afraid for their life, then it will be bad for us as well. Those are provisions that was made in the agreement with Noah. Let me go a little bit further. There's some other things that God did with it. Every moving thing is alive, shall be food for you. Now, that didn't mean that all the laws of kosher were set aside, because Noah, at the end of the flood, when he does this, somehow he knows the difference between clean and unclean. And so when he's talking about that which would be food, Later on, it explained it has to be a clean animal. It has to have been slain and made fit and proper. Then it's food. He's just saying that food now can come from the animal kingdom. And why is he saying that? Well, quite honestly, before this, man didn't eat meat. We only ate vegetable material. And the protein that we got, we got from vegetable material. But he now opened it up and permitted man now to eat of the animal's that he had created as well. They became food for us. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. By the way, in green plants, there are some of them that are poisonous that you can't eat. We learn to distinguish between a good plant to eat versus a poisonous plant we don't eat. And so the same thing is true of the animal kingdom. There are some that we can't eat, some that we cannot eat. But they're a food source for us. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And Noah, from the very beginning, is being given the laws of kosher. Kosher didn't come from the law. Now, I know in Leviticus 11, there's a big listing that Moses gives us where he specifies the idea of clean and unclean, and what is kosher and what's not kosher. But the original commandment was given to Noah and all of mankind. So if you're living here in the earth, and you decide, I want to eat blood, I don't want to eat that which is fit and proper and clean, according to the biblical definition, you are violating the covenant that was set up with Noah to begin with before you ever violate transgress the law with regard to this matter. A lot of people, I think there's even a lot of messianics, you didn't know that kosher, the definition of kosher began with Noah. It didn't begin with Moses and the law. It began with Noah and all of his descendants. They knew the difference between them. He says, and with regard to its blood, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. If you shed blood, it will require your life as well. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. These are the basic rules. If you kill someone, you're worthy of death. These are basic rules for mankind. You don't have to go to wait till Moses and the giving of the Torah to have these rules. These are the rules. Even Abraham knew these rules, and Abraham kept these rules. He kept these commandments. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. It's always been God's intent for a man to be with a woman, establish a family unit, be fruitful and multiply from there and extend from it. That's God's way of multiplying in the earth he did not say go out and just have procreate with just as many people as you possibly can it's in within the confines of noah his wife his family and his sons and their families that these definitions are given so the original restrictions on marriage which began with adam and eve are now carried forward in greater detail by noah and his covenant Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, but now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth that is with you and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I will establish My covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God says, This is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth, And it shall be about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall water become a flood to destroy all of flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember, are you ready for this? The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. The Messiah did not come and get rid of this covenant. This covenant still remains, the covenant with Noah. And it goes on to say, and God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Today, because of the Noah covenant, we eat meat, we see the rainbow in the sky, and we have enmity with the other animal kingdom, and they're afraid of us because we have, we can harvest them, because God established that as the rule. But we also have been promised that we'll never again be judged by water. Now, so let's make sure we review this. We need to get this understanding very clear. God has already proven that he'll judge the whole earth. There's nothing stopping from God judging the whole earth again. It's just the only exception now he has said, I won't judge it by water. Well, I can take you to some other verses where I can show you the next time he said, I'm going to judge it with fire. I don't know the choice between dying from drowning or being burned to death. You know, there's no good choice about how you die. But it seems to me, since I was in the Navy, that maybe dying from water would be a whole lot better than dying from fire. But in any case, he said, no, not going to use water again. I'm going to use fire this time. I remind you that when Peter was writing his last letter, he talked about in the last days there would be mockers, and they would be mocking and saying, where's the, coming? where's the coming of the Lord? Everything goes on as before, like with our fathers, and they forget the agreement God made with Noah, and they forget that God already has judged the world once before and is willing to judge it again, and only this time it will be by fire. Now, let me give you one more covenant before we uh, come to a conclusion here. I want to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. As you know, Abraham was called from his country. God now moved in a very different way, in a much more specific way, with the covenant with Abraham instead of just with all of mankind. Adam and Noah, God was making covenants with all of mankind. Now, when it came to Abraham, though he calls him specifically to establish a particular family within the earth that is going to have a covenant with the Creator God. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul says that at this moment, and in fact he quoted from this, he said this is the first time the gospel was ever preached. I mean, let me say that again for all my evangelical Christian friends. The first time that God ever preached the gospel was to Abram when he called him out of his father's house and he said, Go to the land that I'm going to show you. And it was God's intent by Abram going there that the whole world was going to benefit from it. That Abram would establish a family, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob's sons, the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, that would be of benefit to the whole world. There's also another very key provision. He says, I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. Let me just say that this is well known amongst us who are believers i'm not sure the church people quite get this but i do know messianics get this we know as descendants of abram abraham that if people come up to us and they bless us they will get a blessing for it we know that if they come up and they curse us that god will curse them in the course of my lifetime i'm not going to give it into all the testimony and details I have seen the truth of this verse, the truth of these promises from God played out a multitude of times. I have seen people who've come into my life and rendered a blessing to me, and I've seen what the good things God has done for them. I've also seen those who came into my life offering a curse and being against me, and I've seen what has happened to them to the extent, to, even to the level I've seen people die to that level. And most messianics understand this. By being a descendant of Abraham, you receive this heritage. You receive, because this is part of the covenant that God made with Abram and Abraham, and this is part of the covenant that extends down to us. When the Messiah came and did the work of redemption, he did not nullify this statement. I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. He didn't nullify that. That is still in full effect to this day. And Abraham, the paradise where where we're all hoping to go there before the kingdom is established, is called the bosom of Abraham, the paradise of Abraham, where God began to develop a personal relationship with Abraham. Let me draw a quick comparison between Noah and Abraham. Again, Noah's covenant was with all mankind. Abraham's covenant now becomes pretty personal It's an agreement between him and God for his descendants. In the scripture, it tells us that Noah walked with God, but it says Abraham walked before God. This is an interesting word picture here. This is like the story of a father with a son, two sons. The youngest son, the one who doesn't fully understand, is walking hand in hand with the father. In other words, when my son was very small and to make sure he didn't step into the street at the wrong time or fall or stumble, I would reach down. I would hold his hand when we would walk somewhere. And we do this with small children. When they're young and don't fully understand, we hold their hand. But as they mature, as they become older and they begin to understand how things are going on, they can follow verbal instructions and they can see things for themselves and make observations. They can walk in front of the parent. The son can walk in front of the father. What he listens for is the father says, turn to the right or turn to the left or go forward or stop. He can follow verbal instructions. By the way, the commandments of the Lord were given to us in verbal instructions. Which means that for us to have a relationship with God, we have to follow the pattern of Abraham, not necessarily Noah. That we can't just sit around and ride around in the boat and float. We have to walk before the Lord. And that takes energy. That takes effort. You have to learn. And that's the relationship that God wants with mankind. And he developed it first with Abram and later with his full family. Now, I'm going to get more into the covenant that God made with Abraham, but I'm going to have to do that in our next program. I'm going to show you that the covenant that God made had three parts to it, and that each of these three parts are now manifesting and making visible to us about God, because what God does is he manifests his nature in these covenants. If you remember, going back with Adam, were made in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. There's a manifestation of God coming forth in each one of these agreements. If you do business with a certain person and you do it repeatedly with that person, you make many agreements over the course of years and so forth. It's from those agreements, it's from working with them functionally together with them that you learn about the real character of the person. You learn how honest they are. You learn how trustworthy they are. You learn how just they are in their business and their doings. You learn if they do the right thing or if they are not trustworthy and do the wrong thing. You learn as a result of your multitude of experiences working with that person. And what we're starting now is where we're going to start seeing the very character of God. And he's going to try to draw us into him changing our character to conform to him as well as we carry out further on it. So in our next episode, we're going to go in some detail about this covenant that God made with Abraham. And again, here's the reason why we're doing the basics. We need to know what God really has promised. And if we can't believe him for the covenants that he's made with us, then how are we going to believe him when he talks about the final redemption? When he talks about all the things that will happen in the end of the age, can we trust him for all of those things, that he'll said? Well, I believe we can because he's made promises in the past. He's made these agreements within the past. There's a, a clearly a program here, a plan that God has with mankind that has been carried out from generation to generation. We're part of that plan. And the more we learn about how trustworthy God is and how his agreements work, the more we can then have confidence and understand what God's going to do in the future, particularly when He makes us the promises to redeem us and to bring us into His kingdom and fulfill His promises. Despite all of our misbehaviors are being scattered in the nations and not being thankful for His compassion or His favor, God will still provide His future compassion and favor for us, and His redemption is still yet future For us. So that's our program for this episode. I look forward to seeing you in our next program. Shalom, everyone.